Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. It's been the number one story, not only in this country, but globally for more than a year now. And that, of course, is the pandemic and COVID-19. And uh, now that the vaccines are ramping up in this country, there's an expectation that many of us will have a vaccine vaccination in the near future. Um, is herd immunity a possibility? So here's my first question. We're now told there's a third wave on us. There are various variants of the virus in play. And I'm just wondering, with variants in play, and probably there are some we don't even know about yet, if the variants are such a concern, um, is herd immunity possible and how does that affect vaccination? Who better to ask than Dr. Isaac Bogosh, staff physician, infectious diseases specialist at Toronto General Hospital, associate professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto, and member of the Ontario Vaccine Task Force. Did you get all of that, uh, Dr. Bogosh? I got it. Good to talk, Roy. Great to chat again. Yeah, good to have you with us. Thanks for the time. What do you say? You can. You can get herd immunity. You're just going to need a ton of people vaccinated. It's debatable. You know, do we need 70%? Do we need 80%? Do we need 85%? There's going to be a number. I don't know what that is. It's probably somewhere between the 75 to 85% range. It's totally doable. Hypothetical scenario. What if we don't achieve herd immunity? Okay. We still will have, I'm just making up a number here. 75% 75% of our population vaccinated, including the vast majority of people who are at risk of having a severe outcome. That's a huge win. Yeah, we should aim for herd immunity. Maybe we'll get there, maybe we won't. But if, if we don't get there, let's make sure as many people as humanly possible get this vaccine, especially those at risk of having a severe outcome. So where do the variants fit into the bigger picture? We know we have several of them, but is, is it likely that we don't know of all of them simply because the the, the virus is mutating as quickly as it appears to be. That's 100% correct. And and if we give opportunities for the virus to mutate, it will. That's what viruses do. And there's there's no surprise. And, and these variants will continue to emerge. And they're not surprisingly emerging in places where there's a lot of transmission. Brazil, South Africa, the UK, several in the US. I mean, this is why it's really important to get this virus under control all over the world. Of course, in Canada, but all over the world. Now, having said that, having said that, based on what we know right now, any of the vaccines that we have available to us in Canada will still help. They'll still help prevent severe illness, hospitalization and death, variant or not. So all the more reason to get the vaccine. So, Dr. Bogosh, you're a member of the Ontario Task Force on on vaccination. And uh, we, we look at other countries. We look at the United States and the United Kingdom. You know what's coming up. We, we hear the stories. They're doing far better than Canada because of their vaccine rollout. It's been much more rapid and continues at a pace far more quick than that of this country. I watched the uh, Players' Championship, Golf Championship last weekend from Florida, PGA Championship event, and uh, none of the players were wearing masks. Ditto the uh, the caddies, at least the ones I saw, and most of the fans weren't wearing masks are we how far behind the curve are we and how important is that we're behind we certainly are i don't think we're as far behind as people say but we certainly are behind we have to remember we're not we don't have the buying power of the united states the european union or the united kingdom we don't not and of course we don't make those vaccines here we we rely on foreign companies and foreign countries to produce and ship them to us in the context of an insatiable global appetite when you start to hear well canada's ranked this and that in the world look at that list carefully 
look at that list carefully. How many countries on that list are using vaccines that we don't have in Canada? Not only that we don't have, that we don't necessarily want in Canada. For example, the Chinese vaccine hasn't been approved here. Several of them. The Russian vaccines haven't been approved here. Nothing against the Chinese and the Russians. They, they know how to make excellent vaccines. But those vaccines aren't approved in Canada. Let's at least compare us in a fair manner to countries that are using the same vaccines that we have. Um, and again, there is clearly room for improvement, but it's not as bad as many make it out to be. And, and also when you factor in this week, like last week and this week, this is the inflection point we're seeing. We are now in that part of having our vaccine move from a trickle into a tidal wave. It is happening. The numbers suggest it, and it's just going to get better and better and better. When we look at the number of vaccines in Canada per day starting last week and moving forward with a major inflection point this week. We're getting a million doses of Pfizer into the country every single week through May. Like, this is this is happening. No, I understand that. But uh, the argument is made, and I think convincingly, that the federal government didn't do what it should have done as far as ordering the vaccine properly is concerned. And you and I can't, we don't have more than two or three minutes left in the interview. And we, we've talked about that. But let me just get on this and maybe you can build in an answer to that point as well. You and I have also spoken about the fact that uh, there's now a four-month time period that's been approved between vaccine uh, shot number one and number two in Canada. Uh, can you address that again, please? And I want to just put it to you in these terms. I received an email from a listener two days ago. Her 100-year-old father celebrated his 100th birthday yesterday, has to wait four months for the second vaccination. Just doesn't <clears throat> seem right. Yeah, I think we're going to see many provinces take a pivot and likely lower that four-month delay in certain groups. Those groups are likely going to be the older end of the spectrum and people with medical conditions that uh, involve a compromised immune system. I think the data supports that. And I don't think that we'll see that four-month delay in those groups. Um, I, and I agree. I agree. Like, I, I just think that, you know, maybe for younger, healthy, 20-something, 30-something, 40-something-year-old people, it's reasonable. But, but, but not for the older end of the spectrum and people with compromised immune systems. I think we're going to start to see provinces pivot away from that. Okay. When I say vaccine passport, what do you say? Whew, you know what? International travel, we're going to see it. Whether you like it or not, it's coming. Locally in Canada, I think that'll spur a lot more debate. Do you need it to get into a stadium? I don't know about that. What about school? We already have that for schools. You can't send your kids to school without evidence of vaccination for certain things. We'll probably see it for things like schools and maybe amateur sports. We'll definitely be seeing it for international travel. It's already starting. It's already starting. Cyprus is going to allow UK tourists to, to, uh, to travel there if they've got evidence of vaccination. Watch, this is going to, it's going to take a couple of countries to do this, and then they're all going to fall like dominoes. Okay, now what are you looking for as an infectious diseases specialist? As you watch the development of this, uh, of this COVID and the variants, what are you looking for? What's of interest to you? I want to see as the rate and pace of vaccination continues in various groups, I want to see the case counts hospitalizations and deaths go down in those exact groups. We've already seen it for long-term care. In long-term care, they, they're, you know, we can go back and say it wasn't fast enough, but by now, everyone in long-term care in the country's had at least one and most likely two doses of vaccine. Cases have plummeted in long-term care. I want to see that in the over 80 crowd, then in the over 75 crowd, then in the medical comorbidity crowd, and on and on and on. 
How worried are you about the increasing numbers that we're seeing over the last few days that have to do with this third wave of, of COVID? It's real. You can't ignore it. It's here. It's real. Like the numbers aren't lying. That's that's. And the, what, what makes it concerning is that we never really decompressed our intensive care units from the second wave. So we don't have that same wiggle room for the third wave. Like we've been talking for a year, Roy. I'm not a sky is falling kind of guy and I never have been. Let's just look at it critically through uh, an evidence-based lens. The ICUs are not, we don't have that wiggle room with the ICUs, so we don't have a ton of wiggle room if we have a, a massive spike in cases. You can't ignore the numbers, they're going up. You can't ignore the hospitalizations, they're going up. And, you know, we got to curb this quickly. So when do we really start to worry? Or do we worry today? <laughs> I, would, I would start to worry about two to three weeks ago when we started to see... Uh, um, certain rumblings of potentially this being an issue. And then it became grossly apparent about a week ago. Uh, and, you know, listen, I, I'm all for smart policy. Like, I get it. We, we should be looking at ways to do things in a safe and smart way. Like if I was in charge, which of course I'm not, I'd say outdoor everything is fine. I would bend the rules and just say, these are just temporary uh, rules and regulations. Everything's out the window. Move your businesses outdoors, move your restaurants outdoors like you know encroach on the sidewalk on the parks just make sure it's accessible to people but I, I would just move everything outdoors for the next few months and just say listen once this pandemic's over once the dust is settled we can go back outdoor environments are so much safer than indoor environments i think we could do a lot better to make smart policy we're a year into this we know who gets infected where they get infected how they get infected we know how to create safer spaces outdoors is so much safer i'd move everything outdoors watch the numbers drop and then get everyone vaccinated, bada-bing, bada-boom, move along. Bada-bing, bada-boom, is that what you said? That's right. <laughs> I love like, it. it, I it, love it. Like, I love at it. this point in time, it ain't rocket science. <laughs> no, right? no, it's like, good. You know it's this. good. It's good. I Been like it. This. It's good. It makes people feel better. The other day, I came across a, a very interesting story. I found it interesting. And uh, the headline of it was, don't become too concerned about stories about COVID-19 vaccine side effects or, quote, weird stuff, end quote, they may in fact be a good sign. Uh, Dr. Peter Chin Hong is a professor of medicine and infectious diseases. He's a specialist at the University of California in San Francisco. And it was uh, Dr. Chin Hong who was talking about the weird stuff. Okay, <laughs> Dr. Chin Hong, thank you very much for the time. People are lining up in this country. We're way behind the United States in, as far as vaccination is concerned. But there is worry about side effects. And, and you're saying don't worry about the weird stuff. Can I get you to just define for us, please, what the weird stuff is? Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me on, Roy. So the weird stuff is stuff that people see in the media. I think they look really dramatic. I think one of the ones that uh, have, have really galvanized um, folks to think about this more is the Moderna arm or the vaccine arm that people have talked about where you get this really dramatic rash at the site of the inoculation. And it can happen a few days after. Um, and, and then people started thinking about all the side effects around that. Um, and again, it's really a sign that your immune system is being trained. And it's actually a good thing. You know, it's reassuring that, you know, you do have an active immune system. You, uh, the story says that you've split the various side effects from the immunization into four categories. Tell us what they are, please. Yeah, so I think about uh, side effects from immunizations or effects that people talk about into four boxes. The first box is one that people uh, think about normally with vaccinations. So there are 
uh, soreness at the site where you were vaccinated and the associated, associated side effects like fatigue and uh, headache, muscle and joint pains, and then fevers even, I think, go into that category. I think people expected them. They were talked about a lot, um, and they all go away, which is great. Uh, the second box is the serious adverse effects. Uh, they got a lot of attention early on, uh, particularly in healthcare workers who are getting the, the shots, the COVID vaccines, and they included uh, really severe anaphylactic reactions, kind of like uh, when your throat swells up and you have swelling all over. And um, the way that we dealt with this, first of all, was to enumerate the risk. And the CDC this, did this really uh, good study based on the uh, first few million doses of the Pfizer and Moderna shots. And they found that it was really super rare. So 2.5 per million in Moderna and 11 per million in Pfizer. So very uh, rare and it's the reason why we observe folks for at least 15 minutes. And if you have a history of allergies, severe allergies, you'd be watched for 30 minutes. So that's the second box. The third box is really the weird stuff that we can expand on, like the Moderna arm, lymph nodes that swell, uh, could be detected on mammograms that people are going for, or you can feel them. And then the fourth box, I think, which is the one that has a lot of public health officials uh, fearful that people would think they would be associated with the vaccines, but actually they're not because, you know, we have things that happen to us in life, um, heart attacks, strokes, blood clots, like in Europe, and um, they would happen regardless of if we got the vaccine or not. So I think that's the way I think about these side effects in these four categories. So uh, in most cases, and uh, maybe it's all cases, if there is a situation like a heart attack or blood clots and death, that is coincidental to the fact there was a vaccine, yes? Yes, but, you know, everyone takes them seriously because, again, you want to always do due diligence. So I think the way to think about these effects that are not related to vaccines are, first of all, is there a biologic reason why you would get certain things, uh, meaning that is it associated with your immune system being more active? And then secondly, how does it compare to the background rate of unvaccinated people in a regular year before COVID? So you look at those two things and then you can come up to a conclusion. I found it very interesting that you, uh, you made an analogy about the body reacting to the, the vaccine, to be getting the, uh, the, the vaccination. And uh, you, the quotes that I have here, your body's going to be pretty peeved that it has to be put to work to make sure you don't get ill. And it acts up in a small way because you said it, no wonder it's angry because it's been sluggish this whole time. It's not seen things like this before. And all of a sudden it has to do put 10 push-ups and it's complaining. Exactly. It's kind of like immune cell boot camp, if you think about it. So when the when you get a vaccine, depending on the type you got, say we talk about the Pfizer and Moderna, you're getting this message um, to tell the cells, hey, cells, wake up, make these spike proteins that are not the real virus. And your body sees these spike proteins floating around and all of a sudden they get activated. So you get your immune system, um, uh, to, you know, sort of being mobilized to fight this weird foreign spike protein thing in your blood 
And so they develop neutralizing antibodies, they develop uh, T cells that recognize them, uh, not only now, but for the future. So when the real deal COVID comes along, your body's like, hey, we've seen this before, let's bring in the troops. And now look, they're really super well-trained. Okay, we have a few seconds left here. The director of UCSF's uh, Immunocompromised Host Infectious Diseases Program. What about people who find themselves immunocompromised with the, with the vaccinations? What should they be thinking of? So the issue that we've been learning with immunocompromised folks, that is people who've gotten, say, like a transplant or they have uh, cancers, they may not respond as robustly as uh, the general population. In fact, we don't worry about the side effects too much with them, but the fact that, um, you know, we, you definitely want to get your second shot if you're immunocompromised, um, but that we don't recommend at this time checking an, uh, an antibody status just because there are lots of other t uh, immune cells that are at play, like T cells, that we don't have a good test for. So that, uh, you know, I think we're learning more about this particular group more and more and whether or not they would need another booster uh, above the general population in the future would need to be seen. Well, I appreciate the time, Dr. Chin Hong, particularly uh, since people do worry about side effects and you're saying the weird stuff could actually be good for you because it's your body doing what it's supposed to do. The Conference Board of Canada is reporting that retail sales fell in January due to new limits on economic activity and uh, that is on top of the drop in retail sales in the month of December, which I think was 3.7%. So, uh, what kind of shape are we in? Let's talk to our good friend, Dr. and Professor Eric Cam, macroeconomist at Ryerson University. Professor Cam, thank you very much for, for the time. So, let's start with national debt. As I understand it, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong here. The federal debt translates to just over $10,000 in financial responsibility for each Canadian citizen, no matter what pie-in-the-sky money provinces, promises rather, are delivered by federal politicians looking for those high-power, hugely pensioned and well-paying gigs. We all over 10, each and every one of us, you, me, your kids, every little kid on the street owes $10,000. True? Uh, it's very true. You can't argue with the numbers. First of all, thank you for having me. I liked your intro about making straight A's. I made straight A's too, but my B's were awfully crooked. Um, they're lying. Not... Listen, they're lying. When they talk about me getting straight A's, I didn't write it. I didn't voice it. I have nothing to do with it. It's third party stuff. They're lying. I know, but it's my weak attempt at humor. Just ask my students. So <laughs> you ask how we're doing and you know, the answer is we're not doing very well at all. I, I think the numbers are actually staggering uh, about the total sales and how they dropped over January and February, because people say if they want to sound good, well, there's nowhere to shop. The lockdowns have prevented face to face business. But then you have this odd macroeconomic puzzle because people say, well, online is available. Why? So if you can't shop in in person, why don't you shop online? So what's the puzzle then? Well, the answer is very simple. The disposable income is not there. It is much less than the government would have you believe. We've talked about this before that the federal government would like everyone to think that there's this great big pot of savings on which people are sitting. Um, and I've said before, I, I'd like to find it. So I think the truth is that when it comes to the sales numbers falling, there isn't the disposable income. And in the rare cases where there is the disposable income, there's just much less tolerance for risk in this economy. Attitudes towards risk are always hard to monitor, but we know 
in recessions and depressions, risk aversion tends to rule the day. So people that even have money are really not spending it. Okay, so let me just come at something uh, from, from, I don't know, left or right wing, I don't know, down the middle, whatever. And that is the housing bubble. And that is the amount of money that's being spent on, on, on houses and condos in this country. What, are you, what, is your, what is the upside here? I mean, I shouldn't be asking that question because most people are going to say, well, look, they're just increasing in value exponentially. But what, are, what concerns do you have as a macroeconomist on the amount of money that's being spent on housing in Canada? If you have any. Uh, there's, you know what? It's, a, it's an excellent question. And there's a micro and a macro answer. So the, the micro answer, of course, is that when it comes to, to people and borrowing, I think that we can really get seduced by the low interest rates. And so when you start to show people what they can feasibly afford when, say, a five-year mortgage can be had for 1.45%, People get pie-in-the-sky ideas of how big a house they can afford, or even worse, if they can't afford a house, well, maybe they, maybe in their mind they can afford a, a house. And they start to tell themselves stories about how it'll be okay because I'll cut back on everything, including food and clothing, to be able to afford my home. So, of course, the probability of defaulting on a mortgage is the micro answer, and it starts to rise rampantly. But I think we have a bigger problem right now, Roy, if I may, and it's the macro version of what's going on right now in the bond market. And you say, well, what does the bond market have to do with uh, my mortgage? So basically, when we talk about bonds, we talk about yields. What does the bond yield? Uh, and, and that's the 4% or the 5%. And the reality is, we know that our bond yields are skyrocketing right now. And again, a lot of people are going to say, well, isn't that good? Not really, because an increase in bond yields, which also we're going to consequentially increase longer term interest rates, that's going to hurt GDP. So let me get back to your mortgage question, because I tend to ramble. Higher yields on bonds make it more expensive to borrow money. That slows down economic growth right? The more investors want a bond, the less you have to pay them to take it. And the less investors want a bond, the more you have to take them to pay it. That's okay. That's free market. It determines risk, but it increases the risk of losing money. So getting back to your mortgage question, mortgages are competing with investors for capital. And if government bonds are a better yield, then people would rather choose that over mortgages. So if mortgages are risky, then as the yield rate goes up on bonds, it's going to drop the amount of money that people can invest in their mortgage. So simple example, if you would have qualified for a $1 million mortgage um, two months ago, now you'd qualify for a $900,000 mortgage. While that will cool down the housing market, it will also greatly cool down liquidity and the amount of money being spent in the economy. It has to all add up to GDP. So that's a really long-winded, um, and I apologize, way of saying on a micro level, people are going to start defaulting if rates go up. And on a macro level, rates are going up on bonds, and that's going to suck liquidity out of the system. So if the rates are going up on bonds, and they are, that uh, puts to an end, does it not? The federal government's insistence that borrowing money is no problem because interest rates are so historically low. Well, that's right. That's right. That story is going to come crashing down. 
Um, our, our government is wonderful at telling stories. Uh, their favorite, of course, is the interest rate story and that you should borrow as much as you can because it's never been cheaper to borrow. And to get back to your first point about national debts and deficits, because it ties in, yeah. they've been buying bonds and printing money like it's no one's business. And the government takes the position that as long as we borrow from ourselves and our own currency, denominated in our dollars, there's nothing to fear. And so it's really interesting that you brought up the left wing versus the right wing, because left wing economists argue, who cares? The debt, the deficit doesn't matter. Um, so let's just target inflation. Let's let's just let the economy inflate in terms of money as much as you want. And and even more interesting is a lot of left wing economists are rallying the government to have a dual target now of not just inflation control, but of full employment. So essentially, they don't just want the Bank of Canada to act as the lender of last resort, but they want them to be the employer of last resort. And so that's just going to increase the debt burden. And so for the people listening who say, well, so what? So the debt goes up big deal. It raises borrowing costs, slows the growth of the economy, reduces GDP, raises the risk of financial crisis, and it causes a decline in the value of government securities. So there's very little good about it. So, uh, Professor Cam, I get an email from Joe, and he says, you talking about the national debt and each Canadian owing $10,000. That means nothing. What do you have to say for yourself? And my response was, April 30th. Bye-bye. That means nothing. Well, that would be nice. Um, I guess that the listener is not concerned with the overall health of our economy because I would just ask that listener to shrink the economy down to the economy of his household, or his or her household, and if everybody in that household was in a negative position of $10,000, how would their financial health look? How would their ability be to, to, to pay their mortgage and, uh, and, and buy commodities? So I don't quite understand the point of it's, it's meaningless. The, you know what's meaningless, Roy, is that for most people, the numbers get so bloated and so inflated. It's true. They can't wrap their head around them. And that I yeah. understand. And I'm sympathetic to that. You know, you, but, go to, you, you go to the grocery store and you have a budget of, I don't know, depending on the size of your family, maybe you're by yourself or you have a family, I don't know, a few hundred bucks. If you have a large family, you have to go and get groceries. Uh, so when we get these, these national debt numbers, they are so exponentially huge that they don't register. But what, the reason I wrote April 30th on my return email was because our taxes keep going up, and that's the tax deadline. You want to find out what that 10 grand means? Wait a couple of years. See what happens to your taxes going forward. And, Professor Cam, if we add then the deficit of 2020, which was close to $400 billion, we're going to approach that again in 2021. And if we go back to 2008, and this is Tristan Hopper's story, go back to 2008, Canada's single largest deficit during the Great Recession was $56 billion. 2020 approached $400 billion. Look out. Well, that's exactly right. And so again, to that listener and to all listeners, what I would say is try to pretend that your house is a microeconomy because it is. And the problem with that scenario of owing $10,000 per person in your house is you have to ask at some point, don't you want to start saving? Don't you want to start creating and generating wealth 
inside of your own home. And then if you blow that up to 37 million people in Canada, don't you at some point want to do something more productive than paying off interest payments? Because that's what your house is going to do. And that's what the government is going to do if they keep running deficits and debts like this. The debt, by the way, is just the accumulation of year over year over year deficits. And a deficit simply means to the listeners, government spending is greater than taxes. What's going out is greater than what's coming in. So you would like to think that as an engine of growth, the economy can do more than just pay back interest payments the same way as you wouldn't be very happy in your home if you turned to your better half and said, we're not coming ahead each month. All we're doing is servicing our debt. Yeah. So uh, on to the other issue that I wanted to talk to you about, and that is the budget or lack of budgets. We have two years now, two, two years plus without a budget, and Yves Giroud, the parliamentary budget officer, on this program last weekend, when I asked him, and you heard the clip, we played it at the beginning, uh, how can, can you play that again for me, Will? Just get the Yves Giroud clip and play back what the parliamentary budget officer said. The budget, there's no plan, no idea of what the government intends on doing for the next year or two. Now, they say it's very difficult to do. Well, maybe they should take a, they should take a lesson or two from provinces because all provinces have been able to do it. So maybe provinces could teach the feds how to do that because they've all done it. So you have the parliamentary budget officer concerned, very concerned about no budget. We have the provinces delivering a budget, and all six of the other G7 nations have delivered budgets. But our government, for two consecutive years now plus, has not delivered a budget. What does that speak to to you, the macroeconomist? It speaks to absolute macroeconomic lunacy. And I know that I get farther and farther away from getting invited to the Liberal Party uh, convention every year. But for two years, no budget. All the provinces have budgets. The six nations in the G7 have budgets. But Trudeau's Canada, nope. No budget. So what does that actually go back to in economic terms? Again, most of these things go back to old debates. And one of them in economics is that do we have rules or do we have discretion? And our government obviously is leaning toward discretion. And that is okay when things are well, but it raises uncertainty and it raises questions about long-term liquidity and growth potential. But more important, because I've actually thought about this, it means that our prime minister has the benefit of having no bar against which to measure spending. You can't overspend if in theory you have no bar of what overspending looks like. So it gives the prime minister carte blanche to spend. He never has to answer for it, never has to says, say we're over the projection because there was no projection. So are we not supposed to have some sort of checks and balances system in place for this? Well, I guess that it's called nice. elections, right? Yeah, they're called elections. I mean, other countries do have checks and balances. We tend not to have one. And if you want to look at the best example, you mentioned it, Christia Freeland, who's a very intelligent woman, has been speaking this week a lot about this $100 billion in spending over three years to stimulate the economy. She doesn't tell you how, she doesn't tell you where, and she doesn't tell you on what these monies will be spent. So once again, the Liberal government, I'll give it credit for one thing, it's consistent. When it comes to rules versus discretion, it takes the discretion angle, and it says that positive expectations are more important than reality. This government, to me, is huge on the positive expectations game. Let people believe we are on the cusp of an economic boom, and if we pray long enough, we might just be lucky enough to motivate the behavior and create one. I.e., once again, Roy, we've talked about it before, look here, 
don't look here. So again, a, another quote from the uh, Parliamentary Budget Officer on this program a few months ago when we were talking about the fact that the Liberal government, and we're just talking about them because they're the ones who are in power and they're the ones who are, you know, they're running the country, essentially like a majority government because the opposition is essentially useless. But uh, he, he, I, I asked him about the spending that was being done, billions of dollars, unaccountable spending. No one was knowing what the, where the money was going. And Monsieur Giroux said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, if you if you can sleep well at night thinking that somebody else is spending massive amounts of your money and everybody's money in this country without accountability, then good for you. But I can't sleep well at night with that going on, and neither should any of us. So to conclude, and we have 30 seconds, Professor Cam, where would you rate our financial realities in Canada's financial reality right now? Uh, very poor. I would say, number one, I hope that this discretionary income and this and this savings that people are alleged to have, I hope that it's true. Because if it's not, when we come out of this and there are very few jobs, there are very few full-time jobs, and the wages are going to be lower than they were before the recession, I don't see how we pull out of this. Globalnews.ca reporting Canadian officials will not be granted permission to attend the trial of Michael Kovrig, who's been detained on espionage charges in China for more than two years. In a statement emailed to Global News on Sunday, Global Affairs Canada confirmed Canadian officials will not be in attendance of the trial, set to begin tomorrow. According to the terms of our bilateral consular agreement, China is obligated to provide access to Canadian consular officials to the trials of Canadian citizens, the statement read. However, China is saying no, because these days it appears that China is just going to push and push and push, and whoever gets in the way gets pushed out of the way as much as they can. Margaret McQuaid Johnson joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Uh, Professor McQuaid Johnson is Senior Fellow at the Institute of Science, Society, and Policy at the University of Ottawa. Also a Canada-China Forum Advisory Board member and a member of the Canadian International Council Board. Professor McQuaig Johnson, thank you very much for the time. Does this surprise you, this, uh, this announcement from China, that no Canadian consular officials will be uh, allowed to be at the trial of, uh, of Michael Kovrig? Well, it doesn't surprise me in the sense that I know China well. And the one thing they do consistently is they stick with the rules until it's not in their interest. And then they completely ignore the rules. And that happened at the WTO. It happened with South China Sea. Uh, it, it's happening all over now. It's really ramping up with Xi Jinping. Uh, so you're right. They're floating the uh, Canada-China Consular Agreement and the Vienna Convention. Uh, they're doing it on the grounds that this involves national security. But as we saw with Michael Spavor's uh, court case on Friday that lasted only two hours, obviously they have no evidence. Uh, because if you have evidence, it takes some time to go through all of that. So this was just a pro forma thing to to uh, you know get their trials behind them. And they're not reluctant at all to exhibit this. They're not hiding anything, are they? It's just this is the way we're doing it. There's nothing you can do about it. So off off you go. Yes, that's right. And they're doing it with with every country. They did it uh, with the Alaska meeting um, that that we saw with the U.S. Secretary of State. This was this last Thursday. They were very belligerent. That's right. They were belligerent in the first day of the meetings, and 
when the U.S. officials mentioned that allies uh, in their recent meetings in Japan and South Korea had complained about China's coercive action, their response was, uh, well, they're our second and third trading partners. The implication being that they won't do anything against China that would jeopardize their trade. Uh, Professor McQuaig Johnston, what what is the uh, the actual rule of law in China? How is the trial process supposed to unfold? Was the two hours last Friday uh, what it's supposed to be? I understand the trials there are very brief, and and and, and appeals can be even more brief, and the uh, carrying out of a sentence can happen almost immediately. Uh, what is the process supposed to be? Well, um, the the uh, individual has a chance to have a brief discussion with his lawyer uh, right before uh, going into the courtroom. Inside the courtroom, he's not allowed to talk to his lawyer. He can't take any notes in, and so if he intends to speak out on his behalf, he has to have uh, thought of all his uh, speaking points and memorized them in advance. Um, the one thing that... Uh, that Michael Kovrig has, uh, that Michael Spavor didn't, is his ability to understand Mandarin very well. Whereas Michael Spavor has spent his career in North and South Korea, and therefore he, he knows Korean very well, but just has a rudimentary knowledge of Mandarin. And so that that means that his trial would have been complete confusion to him. Uh, he wouldn't have understand what was going on. And, you know, the, because there are no diplomats, there are no, um, no press, uh, no public in the, the courtroom. Uh, it's only a few individual people there. Um, there are no witnesses to the fact that they're not following due process. Um, and, and, you know, that this is all a, a rule of law is laid out in international norms. And China just completely ignores it. Uh, am I correct in understanding or reading? I read not long ago that in Chinese trials, criminal trials or espionage trials, major trials, the guilty verdict is arrived at 99% of the time. Is that correct? It's uh, actually the numbers just were published by a group, an international organization called Safeguard Defenders, that's been looking at the num- numbers from 2000 to, to 2020. And so the current number is 99.96. And uh, this was just published on Thursday. And the uh, actual number in terms of the number of judicial rulings was 1.7 million. And out of those, 600 people were found not guilty. That's just astonishing. That is astonishing. For people in Canada. That's that's just a mind-numbing. So what influence then... Because the United States has taken a position supporting Canada and our position concerning Michael Scovery against Bavor. Uh, and there's another Canadian, Robert Schellenberg, who's under death penalty in China. Uh, how important is it and how significant to China is it that other countries, particularly the United States, are siding with, with, with our position? Well, what it means is that internationally China is going to be losing face. And you're right to draw on that, the, the support we've had from other countries. There were um, eight diplomats from other countries, um, eight other countries, at the courthouse outside um, before Michael, Cove, Michael Spavor's trial. And they didn't know which van or car he was in because all the, you know, when they're driving into the facility, they're all blacked out. 
But, so they waived it, all of them. And after the, Michael Savor's trial, his lawyer told them that, that he had seen them and that w- that was greatly supportive to him. So that's really compelling. Uh, and we may see even more than eight um, in Beijing because that's where all the embassies are. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're seeing is the first action of the um, declaration on arbitrary detention that China that Canada led about three weeks ago. Um, it had a three-hour launch of this where uh, the foreign ministers of 58 countries spoke, including Anthony Blinken from the U.S. He gave a heartfelt uh, statement of this is not uh, consistent with international law to have this kind of procedure. And since then, they, they're now up to 61 uh, plus the EU. So other countries are joining. And I think this is going to isolate China from the rest of the, the you know, uh, advanced world um, because it's just not uh, proper international behavior. Yeah, I have uh, just uh, less than a minute, but I want to ask you this question. I've been thinking about it. If they find, and it appears they will, find the two Michaels uh, guilty, if you look at their record, conviction record, are they likely to reach out and just grab some other people, some other Canadians, and just continue this process? Yes, this is really ramped up under Xi Jinping. Uh, it, it was occasional under previous presidents, but uh, under Xi Jinping, this is now a tactic that they regularly use. And, you know, the, the verdict may not come for uh, months or even years, mm-hmm. uh, and the sentencing could be, you know, uh, anywhere from five years to life in prison. Okay. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 